The time is now. Volume One, Episode Ten. This is Employment Law Now. Look at that. We are at Episode Ten, and it's very exciting. I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor, and I've got a really interesting and fun uh, episode today with uh, a bunch of things that I do want to talk to you about. But first. <laughs> Well, 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 it seems like employers may start getting a little happier, dare I say a little friendlier maybe, with the new administration's Department of Labor. It looks like we are going to be getting some more employer-friendly agenda out of Washington, D.C., at the very least, certainly less pro-employee. For our first Noteworthy Now segment on today's episode, I want to talk to you about Secretary of Labor Acosta. And just on Wednesday, June 7th, uh, Secretary Acosta announced that the United States Department of Labor would withdraw two agency interpretations that had been issued during President Obama's administration, one dealing with joint employers and the other dealing with independent contractors. Now, both of those uh, agency interpretations had provided liberal interpretations of these significant issues and offered some guidance on how the Department of Labor would evaluate the crucial control issue for the employee versus independent contractor issue and the kind of control that you needed to see in order to be considered a joint employer. Now, these were not only expansive and very liberal determinations, but they essentially even went as far as containing presumptions as a default, so that the Department of Labor's interpretation, for example, on independent contractor status would presumptively say that individuals were and should be treated as employees unless proven otherwise. Now, the withdrawal of these two agency administrations is both noteworthy and important in terms of the Department of Labor's mindset and what its agenda might be going forward, at least while President Trump is in Washington, D.C. Maybe it will affect the number of cases and the types of cases that the Department of Labor goes forward with from an enforcement standpoint. But before all of you employers celebrate this withdrawal, it is also important to look at the other side and remember that the law itself on these issues has not changed with this slight agency retreat. In other words, Secretary Acosta's withdrawal of these agency administration, uh, I'm sorry, agency interpretations does not relieve you and your company of its statutory obligations under the law as it exists. 
So I want to spend a few minutes talking about this independent contractor issue because it's one of those hot areas of employment law that I continue to get questions about all the time. And one of the problems is that there are so many myths that are still out there on this independent contractor issue. I can't tell you how many times I'll have somebody call me or come up to me and say, well, I'm paying this individual on a 1099 basis, so that means he's an independent contractor, right? Or the contract that I have with her says she's an independent contractor, so that's good enough, right? Myth and myth. What about this one? Have you heard this one? Well, other companies in my industry are doing it. Other companies are classifying this same position as an independent contractor, so I should be able to do it. Or, well, he works from home all the time, doesn't come into the office, so I'm paying him as an independent contractor. Or, get this one, and I hear this one quite frequently, well, we made this individual start his own company, his own LLC, and I'm paying every two weeks to that LLC, not to the individual. So that means he's an independent contractor, right? Well, any of those factors that I just mentioned might be a factor in looking at the issue of whether the individual should be treated properly as an independent contractor or not but in and of themselves you've got to be careful and you have to steer clear of these myths that are out there and this mindset that well if I pay somebody by a 1099 or or I have a contract with all the bells and whistles that is referred to as an independent contractor agreement that that's okay like so many other issues in employment law, you really have to dig a little bit deeper and give a little bit more analysis to the situation. A lot of different courts and a lot of different government agencies rely on various permutations out there, but here's mine, and here's where I come out on a very non-lawyerly, non-legal standard to go by, a very thumbnail test when you want to determine whether somebody is truly an independent contractor or an employee, and it's called the duck test. Again, very non-legalistic the duck test. In other words, if the individual that you claim to be an independent contractor really truly looks, walks, talks, and sounds like a duck, it's a duck. If it really truly looks, walks, talks, and sounds like one of your regular employees, one of those individuals who you are treating as a regular employee, that person also should be classified as an employee because misclassification and getting it wrong here like with misclassification in the overtime setting really can lead to substantial damages and in some cases even civil penalties so I want to give you a couple of top five scenarios um, these are not definitive bright line rules necessarily and there are so many factors that go into the analysis but they may raise red flags so here's my top five potential problems. If you are doing these, you may have a misclassification issue. One, again, if you can't tell the difference between the independent contractor and the employee, maybe they're both working in the office, maybe they're even sitting side by side in the office. If you can't tell the difference, you may have an issue with your classification. Again, the duck test. If it walks, sounds, and looks like a duck, it's a duck. Number two, the individual is not doing any work for other companies. The individual's not holding him or herself out to other companies to perform the same services and is only performing services for your company. You may have a misclassification problem. 
Three, the individual has an extremely long tenure with your company, maybe 10, 20, 30 years with your company. Maybe he or she even supervises other people. You may have an issue with your classification. Four, the individual is using your tools or your supplies, your items in order to perform the services being performed by this individual. You may, depending on the other factors as well, have an issue with your independent contractor classification. And then five, and maybe most importantly on this issue of control, you're the one, your company is the one who directs when, where, and how the individual is doing the work. If you are controlling the manner and the means of the work, not just the result, you may have an issue with classifying that individual as an independent contractor. But let's look at the other side also, and, and let me give you my top five factors that may show you that, hey, you're okay in classifying this individual truly as an independent contractor. One, the individual has his or her own employees, so there is some setup there. Two, the individual pays his or her own expenses, business expenses, his or her own insurance for the services being provided. Number three, the individual may have his or her own office space or location, uses his or her own tools and supplies in order to perform the services. These are the kinds of factors you're looking at to say, well, maybe I'm okay with classifying this individual as an independent contractor. Four, the individual not only negotiates and maybe dictates what the rate of pay is going to be, but works when he wants to, works the schedule when he wants to, can turn down assignments when he wants to. That kind of control over the schedule and when and how the individual is performing work will go a long way in truly properly classifying the individual as an independent contractor. And then last, the fifth factor that uh, helps you on the classification front is if the individual either on his own or through a company is in fact working for others, performing services for others, holding himself out to the general public to be able to perform services for others. Remember, you want to be able to articulate a difference in what the independent contractor is doing and how he or she is doing it compared to your employee. Because if the independent contractor looks, talks, and quacks like a duck, in other words an employee, the Department of Labor or some judge is more than likely going to find that the individual is a duck. <coughs> Moving on to our next Noteworthy Now segment case, I want to touch on an interesting case uh, in federal court in Pennsylvania. And for those keeping score at home, the case is Larison versus FedEx Corp. And it really shows how important it is to do performance reviews and to do documentation in the workplace effectively. I have people all the time say to me, well, I document. I've heard from lawyers and other people that it's all about documenting. And I want to just tweak that a little bit because in my view, it's not just about documenting. It's about documenting effectively, doing it effectively. In this Larison case, you had a 45-year-old sales executive who was fired and replaced with a 38-year-old. In fact, two younger sales executives did worse on certain sales benchmarks that were being reviewed by management. They weren't fired, but the 45-year-old sales executive was fired. And as many of you know, you talk about a 45-year-old and you say, well, is that really old? 
probably not in layman's parlance, but when it comes to at least the federal uh, age discrimination statute, anyone 40 or over is protected. So 45-year-olds are considered protected under the law. Now, the court in this case has not issued a decision on the merits just yet, but the court did determine that the case could not get an early dismissal and did have to go to trial, where you are then rolling the dice with an uh, unfamiliar jury of your peers. Why did the court make that decision not to dismiss the case early? Because there were potentially inconsistent stories for how the performance was reviewed, what certain legitimate factors were used in determining the termination, such as experience and tenure with the company. So one of the takeaways from a case like this, because I always look at these cases uh, from the mindset of how am I going to defend the company if and when this case is brought to court? And it's about what I refer to as the TIE principle. The TIE principle, T-I-E, truth in employment. Why are you doing performance reviews? Why are you doing documentation if you're not going to be truthful, if they're not going to be accurate? You are better off not doing performance reviews if they are just going to be cut and paste jobs from the year before, where every year has the exact same comments and same uh, checkoffs because you just don't have the time or because you're lazy. Or, and this is the situation I see all the time, because the managers and the supervisors who are in the trenches with the employees being reviewed have a hard time giving constructive criticism to the people they are working with day after day. But again, effective, accurate, truthful performance reviews are critical, not only to improve your workforce, and at the end of the day, isn't that really what you're trying to do? You want to make sure that your employees are productive so that they can be valuable members of your organization. So not only is effective documentation critical for morale and improving the productivity of your employees, but it's really important from a litigation defense standpoint. One great example that I can give you is, is one from years ago, and I, I give this example a lot to people. I had this new age discrimination case that was filed against a company, and I got on the phone with the client, and I was asking the client about the reasons for the termination decision of this 60-something-year-old employee. And I was told by the client, well, this is going to be an easy one, probably the best slam dunk case you ever got, Mike. The performance had been deteriorating year after year after year. The performance was terrible, and at the end of the day, we couldn't take it anymore. I'm going to overnight you the performance reviews from the last five years, and we'll get out of this case really quickly. Well, I was excited. I couldn't sleep that night. was so happy to be getting this FedEx package the next day, which would make this case the easiest, the biggest slam dunk that I was going to have in my career. Lo and behold, I get into the office the next day. I pull that tab for that FedEx box. I take out the documents. I look at the performance reviews. And what did I see? Exceeds expectations. Glowing comments. Terrific performer. And so we're faced with a situation in that case where you're going to have the CEO or the supervisor or the HR representative show up at a deposition or get on the witness stand in court and testify at that moment why this individual was a bad performer and had to be let go, but yet you have these contemporaneous documents, these contemporaneous performance evaluations saying otherwise. It is critical to have your performance reviews and your documentation be effective. 
using the tie principle, T-I-E, truth in employment. And it's equally critical that you train your supervisors, train the people who are doing these performance reviews to know why it's important to follow this tie principle and to understand how to evaluate employees in writing so that your performance reviews and your employment evaluations can serve your goals when it comes to a litigation defense and you are not getting thrown to a jury because of arguably inconsistent stories. Moving on to the trending now segment for today's episode, when you hear about the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, what do you think of? Well, you probably think of an employee who needs some sort of accommodation or is going out on some disability-related leave, but the ADA has more than that. In this day of high-tech and reliance on snazzy company websites, there's another aspect to the Americans with Disabilities Act that applies to employees, but also applies to your customers. And that's this issue of website accessibility. Website accessibility. The case I want to touch on um, is not really dealing with employees, but there is an impact here. It may be the very first case to actually go to trial in this area. And again, for those keeping score at home, the name of the case is Gill versus Winn-Dixie Stores down in Florida. And in this case, the matter went to trial. It was a bench trial before a judge, not in front of a jury. But a Florida federal judge ruled after a trial in favor of a blind man who alleged that Winn-Dixie's website was not accessible and therefore violated the Americans with Disabilities Act. What he alleged and what the federal court uh, judge agreed with was because the website was not equally accessible to visually impaired individuals, this particular plaintiff was denied the full and equal enjoyment of the goods, services, facilities, and privileges that are enjoyed by non-visually impaired customers. This has been a big issue, particularly in Washington, where the Department of Justice um, continues to say that it's going to issue website accessibility regulations. What we're hearing now is that those final regulations are not going to be issued until uh, early 2018, uh, at least. But there is some guidance out there, both uh, with the DOJ and with other agencies. And if you are a company that relies heavily on your website for its business, either with regard to company acts, uh, client or customer access uh, of that website, or even employees who will be using that website, you might want to take a look at the website accessibility rules and regulations uh, that do exist uh, at this point and make a determination whether from a cost-benefit standpoint it behooves you to upgrade your website so that it meets accessibility requirements and does not run afoul of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Finally, we move to our really, really now segment of today's episode because in breaking news an appellate court in New York State has rejected an appeal by the non-human rights project which sought to afford rights to two chimpanzees who the project argued should be released from their cages and placed in a sanctuary it was a habeas corpus petition and the non-human rights project was arguing that these chimpanzees should have their own personal rights well, the court rejected that argument and ruled that 
Chimpanzees are not persons. Chimpanzees are not persons. That's what we needed an appellate court to issue as a ruling in writing. Really now? Really now? But I guess the takeaway here, at least for this Employment Law Podcast, if you do have chimpanzees performing work for you at one of your facilities and one of your offices, the good news is, is that they may not be covered by most federal, state, and local employment laws because most employment laws only cover human being employees. Well, that's all the time I have for you today. I hope this was informative, and I hope this was useful to you and your company. Please continue to send comments, positive, negative. Send me questions. Send me themes and topics that you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I've got a lot of great things coming up. I'm going to be talking with both a current and a former official at the EEOC to give you some insight on what the EEOC's agenda is going to be continuing through 2017 and into 2018 and how and why the EEOC comes down on certain issues that are really on the minds of employers these days. So keep looking, keep watching. I'm going to try to continue to educate and maybe entertain a little bit as we go forward every two weeks on this podcast. Until then, thank you as always for listening, and I hope all your labor is productive.